toddler nursery and children's church. You're dismissed at this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please flip over to Leviticus chapter 15. Leviticus chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I want to kind of by way of reminder... Read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Now, some of you laughed because you read ahead. You were the star pupils. You were like my, my wife. My, some of you may not know this. My wife and I have known each other since about the fourth grade. And she was a star pupil in front of the class, paid attention, took notes, did her homework in a timely fashion, read ahead. I was kind of a back of the class kind of guy. And so I didn't do that kind of stuff, at least not when we were in school together. So some of you are star pupils in here. You've read ahead. You've already asked me about this text. If you're a guest with us today, you picked a doozy of a day to visit Sylvania Church. Just want to say that to you this morning. We've been going through Leviticus and we're to Leviticus chapter 15. And as a reminder, all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful and it's profitable and it's good. So um, what I will say as we get ready to read this, there are three chapters in the book of Leviticus that deal with very sensitive topics. This is one of them. Here in a few weeks, we'll be in chapter 18. It deals with topics even of a higher level of sensitivity than this one. And then a few weeks after that, we'll be in chapter 20. And it deals with topics of pretty high level sensitivity as well. I think one of the reasons why these kinds of things make some people uncomfortable is because in my opinion, the church has done a really bad job on two things. One, teaching through the whole Bible. Because we talked about it at the beginning of me doing Leviticus. I asked, I said, you know, how many people had gone through Leviticus, not in a Sunday school class or a small group or a short term Bible study, but verse by verse in a church from the pulpit. And I think there was one person who said like 40 years ago they were at a church where they did it. But it was at the nighttime service. There were a lot fewer people there. The church has done a really bad job going through the whole Bible. So sometimes there's stuff in the whole Bible that makes us a little uncomfortable because we just either ignore or forget or didn't know it was there. And number two, there's some issues that the church should be willing to address and to talk about and to be upfront about, to be honest about that are beneficial, as Paul says to Timothy in Second Timothy, chapter three, profitable for the church that we just avoid. And by avoiding them, we let someone else educate us about these topics. So we're not skipping chapter 15. So here we go. The Lord also spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. 
This moreover shall be his uncleanness and his discharge. It is his uncleanness, whether his body allows his discharge to flow or his body obstructs his discharge. Every bed on which the person with the discharge lies becomes unclean and everyone, everything on which he sits becomes unclean. Anyone, moreover, who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever sits on the thing on which the man with the discharge has been sitting shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches the person with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Or if the man with the discharge spits on one who is clean, he uh, too shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And every saddle on which the person with the discharge rides becomes unclean. And whoever then touches any of the things which were under him shall be unclean until evening. And he who carries them shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Likewise, whomever the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. However, an earthenware vessel with uh, which the person with the discharge touches shall be broken and every wooden uh, vessel shall be rinsed in water. Now, when the man with the discharge becomes cleansed from his discharge, he shall then count off for himself seven days for his cleansing. And he shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water and will become clean. Then on the eighth day, he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting to give them to the priest. The priest shall offer them one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And so the priest shall make an atonement on his behalf before the Lord because of his discharge. Now, if a man has seminal emission, he shall bathe all of his body in water and be unclean until evening. And as for any garment or any leather on which uh, there is a seminal emission, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. And if a man lies with a woman so that there is a seminal emission, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And And when a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. And everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. And everything on which she she sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed shall shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything on which she has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it is on the bed or uh, on the thing on which she has been sitting... When she touches it, uh, he, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if a man actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Now, if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not of the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period of all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue uh, as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. Any bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be like that, uh, like her bed at menstruation. And everything on which she has sat shall be unclean and her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And when she becomes clean for her discharge, from her discharge, she shall count off for herself seven days and afterwards then she'll be clean. Then on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons Bring them to the priest to the door of the tent way of the meeting. And the priest shall then wash, uh, shall offer one of them for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. And so the priest will make an atonement on her behalf before the Lord because of her impure discharge. Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle. 
that is among them. This is the law for the one with the discharge and for the man of the seminal omission so that he is unclean by it. And for the woman who is ill because of menstrual impurity and for the one who has a discharge, whether a male or a female, for a man who lies with an unclean woman. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for its value. Father, thank you when it forces us to address and recognize and look at things that might normally otherwise make us uncomfortable. Father, we praise you that your word is quite complete and very conclusive on many matters. And Father, we thank you that even in a text like this, we're able to see and find the glory and the splendor of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning, kind of running through the crux of the text, what the text is addressing, what the text is talking about, and some of the sacrifices that are being made. So there is common and uncommon issues that are going on in this text. In verse, This is the day the mic goes out. Okay, so there's common and uncommon issues that are related here. So any discharge that involved blood likely... So there's multiple things that are happening here. There's discharge from a man, discharge from a woman. One is common for the man. One is uncommon for the man. One is common for a woman. One is uncommon for a woman. So any discharge that involved blood, and I put likely there because there's a lot of speculation about this uncommon discharge that's happening with a man. What is it? What's going on with him? What's happening? Clearly, there's some sort of sickness that he has that's causing this to take place. And when he's cleansed from this sickness, he has to offer a sin offering and a burnt offering. The same thing with the woman whose uh, discharge is lengthy and goes on much longer than it normally would in the, in the standard cycle of things. And so what happens when there is blood involved is these things require a sin offering and a burnt offering. Now, is it that it requires a sin offering and a burnt offering because the person necessarily did something that was wrong. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You could speculate that, particularly with the man. Normally, when you have these sorts of discharges that with a with a man, it's usually some sort of thing that he's caught that he shouldn't have caught. I'm trying to be sensitive to the children in the room. Y'all are going to have great conversations at lunch today, by the way. Just want to throw that out there. What was the preacher talking about? This is going to be fantastic. And then I'm going to have great lunches with the parents. Why didn't you tell me ahead of time that I was going to talk to my kids about this? Like your kid's 14. You should have already talked to your kid about this. So anyway, it'll be a different kind of conversation. But the presence of blood in the Hebrew mindset, and if you've not been with us or you've forgotten, the presence of blood in the Hebrew mindset required a sin offering and a burnt offering. Because in the Hebrew mindset, life and blood were connected with each other. And a loss of blood at any point for any reason was associated with the notion of needing to restore life to the reality of that individual. And so if the individual is a male and he's having this discharge, likely it involved blood in the discharge. That's a speculation, but it's a good speculation that we can make. Or a, a discharge that a woman is having, whether from a normal activity or an uncommon activity, if it involves blood, there's a requirement for a sin offering and a burnt offering for ritualistic wholeness and purity to take place. 
It's not necessarily that some sin has taken place. We have to remember that. We have to go way back to Leviticus 1 through 6. Not all sin offerings and not all burnt offerings are given because the person giving them committed some sin. Some of them are ritualistic and in purification mindset rather than a need for forgiveness of sin, even though they're called sin offerings or they're called burnt offerings. So I want to touch on that first. Now, those discharges that were common and did not involve blood only require a ritual washing. There was no need for a blood sacrifice. Now, not to put too fine of an unnecessary point about it, but right in the middle of this passage, it discusses a husband and wife having an appropriate physical relationship with each other. No blood sacrifice is needed. Why? Because no, there's no blood involved and there's no sin involved. The Lord has made it very clear in his word that there's a reason for the marital bed. And it's a good and right thing. And that no one should feel shame or guilt in that reality. And so here it's about ritual purity. How can I approach the temple of God? I need to be ritually pure. And so there's a ceremonial washing that takes place. Now, those discharges, as I mentioned before, that were uncommon and had a greater length of time, there was an extended period of separation and uncleanness. Part of this was for the benefit of the community. Part of this was also for the ritual reality. And it, you'll notice these did indeed, like I said a moment ago, involve sacrifice of bloodletting of an animal. And this happened whether it was for a male or a female. Now, I want you to notice... The most significant thing in this text. Go back to chapter 15, verse 31. I want you to see this. So there's already a call for those who have these extended times of uncommon discharge to separate themselves from the people in the camp. Very similar to what happened with the people with leprosy that we saw in chapters 13 and 14. And then notice what it says. Verse 31. Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness. So that they will not die in their uncleanness. By their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. Now to this point. We've only had a couple of death sentence laws in the book of Leviticus. And you may not have been here for those, or this may be your first week, but there's been a couple of death sentence laws in the book of Leviticus that are explicit. Cut them off from their people. It's a metaphor in the Old Testament for the death penalty. All of them that are explicitly stated to this point in the book of Leviticus have been for the priest who do not do the activity of a priest correctly in the whether they're offering a sacrifice for someone, whether they're bringing the grain offering, whether they purified themselves correctly before they went into the tabernacle space, whatever it may, whether they offered the wrong kind of incense, whatever it may be, the death penalties to this point have been for the priest not helping the people worship correctly. Now, we have the first very clear declaration that the people who aren't in the priesthood, although the priest could fall into this, but the people who aren't in the priesthood who prepare to approach the tabernacle with their offerings 
might also die because they are not ritualistically pure to come into the presence of God. It's very intriguing to follow the book of Leviticus and the things that become death penalty standards. Almost all of them in the book have to do with worship. There's a few that have to do with civic stuff, and we'll get to some of those later. But almost all of them have to do with worship. God takes seriously worship. Very much so. And a lot of the regulations are exclusionary. Who can't come and worship? And I know that that sounds funny in our ears. God would exclude people from his worship. Because these aren't Philistines. They're not Egyptians. They're not sons of Esau. They're not people that we would note from the Old Testament who are outside of the covenant of Abraham. These are members of the nation of Israel. To our knowledge, properly circumcised. To our understanding, rightly following the mandates of the covenant. And God is giving to them, his own people, exclusionary causes of why they shouldn't come and worship him. That's kind of strange. But it's here. To the point that God threatens death with it. Hey, if you approach the tabernacle, you're going to run the risk of defiling the tabernacle and dying. Okay. Okay. And this has to do with a lot of really personal stuff. A lot of things that usually make us a little uncomfortable to talk about in public settings like this. But God takes it very seriously. So what do we see then? Where do, where, where do we see Jesus in this? Those of you who've read ahead, you've already asked me that a whole bunch. How are you in the world? Are you going to go from this to Jesus? There's very much like our leprosy texts in chapters 13 and 14. There is a story in the Gospels about this. A lot of times we blow right past it when we read that story in the Gospels. Because either we just don't know Leviticus that well, or we just want to kind of ignore what's the main point behind what's going on in the story. But it's there. And it's in three different places. The place we're going to go to this morning is Mark chapter 5. It's also, if you want to write this down, a very shortened version of it in Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 and 22. And Luke chapter 8, verses 43 through 48. But we're going to hang out in the Mark passage. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. And this is what it reads. And by the way, I just want to point out to you, if you were with us last week and you were here for the leprosy thing. If you'll remember, we went to Mark chapter two for the story about leprosy. Mark's kind of rocking through some of the Levitical law codes of people who were in violation of it and the cool stuff Jesus did for them. It, there's actually some parallels there if you want to like try to investigate that when we get done with Leviticus. But notice here, Mark chapter 5, beginning of verse 25. Look at what it says. It says, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had had and not been helped at all, but rather had grown, grown worse. 
After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power uh, power had uh, proceeded from him, had gone forth, turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And in the other text, we find that it's Peter mostly talking with him. I love Peter. Insert foot into mouth. He's a great guy. He encourages me in every day of my life. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. And the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Most everyone in here, if you've been in church much, you've heard this story about this woman who had this illness for a long period of time, and she just merely touched Jesus's clothes to get better. Probably, though, what you haven't really paid attention to or have had brought out in sermons about this woman is that this is Leviticus 15. That's what's going on. She has an extended period of time of hemorrhaging of blood that's unlike the menstrual cycle, and she is perpetually in a state of ritual uncleanness, needing to be separated from the community, incapable of coming to the tabernacle to worship God. Leviticus 15. Afraid that if she does, she will defile, in this case now the temple, and the earlier days, the tabernacle, defile the temple and be worthy of death. This is, this is Leviticus 15. How do you tie the stuff that we read about in Leviticus 15 to Jesus by seeing what Jesus did with someone who was under the restrictions that are given in Leviticus 15? That's what you do. It's a fantastic story. So let's walk through it just quickly. Notice this woman's predicament. Notice what's going on with her. For Hear, hear me this morning. For 12 years, she has this hemorrhage and continuous flow of blood. 12 years. She hasn't stopped bleeding for 12 years. I don't really think we can emphasize that enough. And by the way, for those of you not in the medical community or not paying attention to the importance of blood in your life, bleeding for 12 years is not good for you. Great way to die. Just I'm gonna throw that out there. Kind of need the blood to stay alive. And if you're losing it pretty much regularly, for over a decade, that's not good for your overall health. It's kind of bad. That's a tough situation to be in. She had spent, it says in our text, all of her money on doctors and she still was not well. Now, please don't take that and run to a sideways sermon and say, see, doctors are bad. Don't do that. That's not what the text is saying. 
Because I'm sure that there's people who went and spent their money on doctors and they did get well. They didn't have to come see Jesus because they went and saw a doctor. It's okay. One of the guys who tells the story, Luke, was a doctor. So it's all right. You know, he gets it sometimes. Hey, sometimes doctors can't help. There's doctors in the room and they're nodding. Yeah, sometimes they can't help. It's okay. Now notice... Per Leviticus 15, what was she supposed to do? She was supposed to stay in isolation. She's supposed to stay away from people. Because people coming in contact with her would also become ritualistically impure. And they'd have to wash and they'd have to stay away for a cycle of a period of time and all that kind of stuff. And so the mandate given kind of by inference in Leviticus and then fleshed out in tradition later on is that you just need to stay away from everybody. It's on you. Kind of like the leper. This is on you. So don't cause us a bunch of problems. You need to stay away from us. But she had like the leper the last time. She had such an extreme longing to be made well that she risked coming in among the populace. According to tradition, you won't find this in the text, but according to Hebrew tradition, had they been made aware of her condition and her circumstance and her bringing herself back into the populace, people could have started to execute the death penalty and stoned her to death. She's taken a big risk. Coming into where the crowd is. She did not want to draw attention to herself. She's been able to sneak in. Nobody knows what her problem is. And nobody knows that she may or may not be making them ritualistically impure and unclean by being around them. So she's trying to be real quiet. She's trying to be covert about this. I don't want to draw a lot of attention to myself. I don't want to get stoned. I don't want people like scatter. I don't want like I just want I just want this to be real hush hush. And I mentioned it a second ago, but in this woman's predicament, yes, she spent all her money and yeah, the doctors couldn't help her. And yes, she had to stay isolated from the community. And yes, she's taking a great risk to even come and be around this crowd. Friend, hear me, though, this morning. She had not been able to attend to proper Judaic worship of her God in over a decade. She had not been able to make any burnt offerings, any sin offerings, any grain offerings, any incense offerings, any peace offerings. She had not been able to enter into the court of the women and make her sacrifices To her God. She was not able to attend communal and corporate worship for over a decade. Because the law would not allow it. God's law would not allow it. Can you imagine this morning? Can you imagine? That some physical condition... That you probably had no real control over. Hinders you. By law. From attending to corporate worship. So she has no money. 
she's still not better. If she has friends, they're distant friends. If she has family, they're distant family. If she has a religious community, it's a distant religious community. She can't be around anyone. She can't come in contact with anyone. And she can't come and worship her God. And this is what she's been dealing with for over a decade. But I want you to notice the difference between what happens here in Mark 5 and what happened there in Leviticus 15. Notice difference one. She approaches the greater priest. In Leviticus 15, she's only supposed to approach the the priest if she's better. Once her body has healed, then she can approach the priest. Here in Mark 5, she approaches the priest so that she can be made better. Praise God. It says here in Mark 5 that she had visited many doctors and she'd used all of her money and none of them had been able to help her. And so she approaches the great physician, the one who actually can help her. The one who can heal her, not just in her body, but also in her soul. Notice the injunction, and this is the language, this is the language that I wanted us to see. Do you remember what Leviticus 5.31 said? Do you remember? The death penalty injunction. Why couldn't they come? So that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. That's why they couldn't come. Don't defile my tabernacle. And I love that language that is among you. She approaches the greater tabernacle. The book of Hebrews, by the way, when we were talking about the tabernacle in Leviticus and we basically preached like that chapter of Leviticus and like the whole book of Hebrews that one Sunday. Because Jesus is the tabernacle. That's who he is. Like that's who he is. He's the tabernacle. He's the one where God's presence dwells among us. And the place where we can go. And the incarnate reality of the divine. That's who Jesus is. She approaches the greater tabernacle. And instead of dying. Receives life. She comes to be made clean rather than coming because she has been made clean. And friends, hear me this morning. I mentioned it last time if you were with us last week with the leprosy, but it's it's beautiful how these chapters resonate through the New Testament and and essentially preach a, a very similar sermon. Friends, there's a lot of you in this room that are trying to be made clean so that you can come to Jesus rather than coming to Jesus and letting him make you clean. And friend, hear me, you will never clean yourself up enough to be acceptable in the presence of God. But I guarantee you, Jesus can clean you thoroughly through and through and present you acceptable before God by his grace and for his glory. And that's what she came to do. She said, I'm going to go be made whole and healed and well and clean by trying to approach Jesus. 
Notice that she comes with no offering. There were no turtle doves. There were no pigeons. There was no sin offering. There was no burnt offering. There was no sacrifice. There was no ritual. She simply came with her brokenness. That's how she came. And friends, I think that we leave off an incredibly important part of the gospel. And it is this. You bring nothing to the gospel except your brokenness. That's it. We are all of us in some way unclean without Christ. All of us. We are in some way, as the Apostle Paul writes so eloquently in the book of Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. Every one of us. And all I bring to the equation of my salvation is my sin. That's it. That's all I bring. That's all you bring. That's all she was bringing was her brokenness. And notice how she comes. She comes with a faith so great. Hear this. Wow, I wish, man, I wish I had faith like this. She comes with a faith so great that she believed that she could merely touch the edge of Christ's clothing and not actually engage with him. She would still be made whole. That's how great her faith is in Christ. If I could just sort of get close enough to him to touch the fringes of his clothes, most scholars think that this is the prayer shawl that Jesus was probably wearing, as many Hebrew men would wear. And it's probably the fringes that were hanging off the end of the prayer. If I could just get a hold of one of those little things hanging off the end of his shawl, I'd be okay. As an aside, and we'll talk about this in a little more detail in a moment, but as an aside, the problem with her thinking there, there are no secret believers. It's no closet Christianity. You can't just creep up on Jesus and get a little something from him and then disappear into the crowd and act like it never happened. It's not how Christianity works. And so notice Jesus' response. Who... Touched me. So I thought Jesus was all knowing. Yes and no. Not going to go into heresy mode in here. But the human Jesus, as it says in Philippians, laid aside his divine privilege and veiled himself in flesh. And he had to grow in wisdom and stature. And he actually had to learn things like a human being. And so simultaneously, in some weird way, he was both all knowing and needing to learn. Incredibly weird thing, the incarnation. And so in this moment, someone reaches up in faith and touches the edge of his clothing and power goes out from him, it says, and heals her. And he stops. They're going to a house where a girl is sick. And he's going to heal her. And the crowd's following because they want to watch the show. And he stops the crowd in the middle of the trip and he says, Stop. Somebody touched me. There's people everywhere crowded in on him, banging and jostling. Peter, being the great guy that he is, points out. He's like, Lord, everybody's touching you. 
What do you mean who touched you? It's like, no, 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 you understand. Somebody touched me in a different kind of way. Power went out from me. Someone has been made whole. Someone has had faith. Who touched me? And the whole crowd has kind of stopped. They're, they're wondering, what, what's, you know. And this woman approaches him and it says in our text, she told him the whole truth. Which means she's having to confess her Leviticus 15 condition in front of this whole crowd of people. That's the only way you tell the whole truth about what's going on with her. And how many people's response was probably to rear back and disgust because now they are ritually unclean because they probably came in contact with her. They know what Leviticus 15 says. She shouldn't have been here. And notice how Jesus responds. It's beautiful. All friends is beautiful. It's so beautiful. Ladies, do not believe the lie that the God of the Bible and that Jesus is not in some way pro-woman. Look at what he does here. Look at what Jesus does. He turns his attention to her and he says, daughter. Let's stop right there. Let's hang out there just for a second. Do you know what? I don't have daughters. Do you know what it takes to be a daughter? Same thing it takes to be a son. Somebody has to be your dad and somebody has to be your mom. You got to have family. You gotta have somebody that's acknowledging you in that place in your family. And for the Hebrew people, what is that place? It means you're a child of Abraham. It's your part of the covenant reality. Well, per Leviticus 15, she's outside of the covenant reality right now. She's not clean. She cannot approach the tabernacle. She can't make the sacrifices. She can't engage with the covenant community. She has no right and no place to call herself daughter because she is on the outside. And the very first thing that Jesus says to her when he looks at her, he says, daughter. You are accepted. You've always been accepted. You're part of this. You are loved. You are cared for. God's compassion is toward you. He is your father. Your heavenly father. And he has great love for you. And it's be- like he could have just stopped right there. A whole big sermon right there and just what he calls her. But he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says. Almost all of your translations are train wreck here. Just want to throw that out there. NASB, I love it. I preach from it. I encourage people to get it. Train wreck of a translation here. I don't usually like to call people out like this. Lynn, do you have your KJV with you right now? All right. NASB says, your faith has made you well. What's the King James say? I'm going to wait. Has made you whole. A lot closer to what it needs to be translated as. You know what that Greek word actually means? Saved. Your faith has Saved you. 
I just want to let everybody in on a little something. Jesus isn't talking about her broken body anymore. Because you know what? If you're in violation of Leviticus 15 because your body is broken. Yeah, you, you probably need to he, be healed. That would be really helpful. But even if you get healed, do you know what would be even more beneficial? For your soul to be saved. And let me be in violation of Leviticus 15 because my body's broken for the rest of my days, but my soul to be saved. And he turns to her and he says, daughter, your faith has saved you. And then he throws the cherry on top. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus is dealing with two very different things in this moment with this woman. He said, I'll tell you what. The oppression that you hear me this morning, hear me this morning, the oppression that you have felt under the mandate of the weight of the mountain of, uh, of the law of Mount Sinai. I'm going to lift the burden of the law off of you because it will not save your soul from your sin. It will just constantly remind you that you are a sinner. I will lift that off of you and you don't know it yet, but I'm going to take it on myself. I'm going to fulfill the whole thing on your behalf. And all that you will ever need for your soul to be right with God is to trust and repent. Praise God for the gospel. Because most of the oppression that she has felt in her lifetime hasn't just been from physical sickness. It's also been from this vast separation of not being able to be in the presence of God. Her life is a lived out testimony of the real reality that all of us face when our sin is weighed heavily on us. And we are trying to approach our sin through some action that we think we can do to be made right with God. And it will leave you in. Empty and have a great void and create a great distance between you and God. And that's what's happening with this woman. God is very far away. Why? Because you are trying to reach God through some sort of legal standard and you'll never get there. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Not Leviticus. Not Exodus, not Deuteronomy, not ritual, not sacrifice, not sin offering, not burnt offering, not purification washing. Your faith has saved you. And oh, by the way, go in peace. You're also healed of your physical affliction. Isn't Jesus good? Golly. And why did he tell her? To go in peace. Because friends, she had not had peace in over a decade. She hadn't had physical peace. She hadn't had mental peace. She hadn't had emotional peace. She hadn't had spiritual peace. There was no aspect of her humanity that not had, had not been adversely affected by the condition that she found herself in. She had no peace at all. All and the Lord Jesus Christ offered her right out the gate peace. 
Because that's what Jesus does. And there's a whole bunch of people in this room. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for peace. And you know how you're trying to find it? Through all the stuff that you think you can do to get it. Well, maybe if I just do this or maybe I go see these. In her case, I'll go see these doctors and I'll spend all this money and I'll do this and I'll do that. that. Do you know how you have peace? Peace does not come. Hear me. Hear me. Peace does not come through the changing of your circumstances. Peace comes with a change of your perspective where you look wholly upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He made a promise, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. This is what I'm going to do for you. And friends, your circumstances might get better. Your circumstances might get worse. But Jesus stays the same. And so he looks at her and he says, hey, go in peace. And notice he tells her to go in peace before he promises her that her affliction is going to be gone. Go in peace. He could have just stopped right there. Go in peace. But he did heal her of her affliction. It's beautiful. And you say, well, what does that do? What, is, what does that mean? What happens here? We, we have no telling anywhere else in the rest of the story of what happens with this woman. We, we, nothing. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. In verse 35, completely unrelated to the story of this woman, but very important for our understanding of what's about to happen next. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, he's still speaking to this woman. They came from the house of the synagogue official. Remember, he's going to heal this little girl. Your daughter has died. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. Nobody's thinking about this anymore. Nobody's thinking about what's going on with this woman and what Jesus is going to say to her next and what needs to happen and and anything else. Hey, that little girl you were going to heal, she's dead. You want to shut down a conversation, have somebody walk in the middle of a crowd and talk about a kid dying. Shuts down a conversation. That's what happens. But there's some righteous speculation that we can make. I don't normally like to do that, but there's some righteous speculation that we can make. Just three chapters before with the leper. What did Jesus tell him to do? Go and make the offering at the tabernacle, at the temple in this case. The one that was commanded by Moses. Go present yourself to the priest. She's a Hebrew woman. She's been longing for this for years. To be made whole and be made right. And be able to live out her life. And be around her friends and her family. And be in community. I can speculate with a high level of certainty. That this righteous God fearing woman. Immediately went and got whatever sacrifice she was supposed to get. And she went to the, found the priest and she showed herself and she made her offering and she entered back into her community. Why? Because Jesus and only Jesus makes us acceptable. 
So I can't, I can't come to the church. I can't do this. I can't be around those people. I can't, uh, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what my life is like. Not inconsequential. Jesus makes us acceptable. Friend, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter how much you've squandered and thrown away and how much wretchedness you've poured into your existence. None of that matters. Jesus makes us acceptable. Why? Because he's the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering and the atonement offering and the incense offering and the grain offering and the things that are sacrificed and the priest who sacrifice it and the altar that it gets sacrificed on and the tabernacle and the temple that it sacrificed takes place in. He is salvation. And only in him are you acceptable to God. Not because of anything that you've done. But because of everything that he has done for you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Father God, thank you that such a strange legal code. Fleshes itself out in the life of a woman a couple of thousand years ago. So that Jesus can show that he is the greater priest and the greater sacrifice and the greater tabernacle and the one who makes us acceptable. Father, thank you. Father, let us glean the right lessons from this today. Let us be reminded that the law was never written to save us. The law was written to show us that we needed saving. Father, help us to hear what we've heard today and to evaluate our lives and to ask honest questions of ourselves. Namely, am I trying to make myself presentable to God rather than Christ? Presenting me to God. Am I finding my peace and my hope and my joy and my delight in the positive nature of my circumstances? Or am I finding the greatest joy of my life and the glory of who Jesus is? Father, forgive us. Father, forgive us. When we look past Jesus. To despair at our circumstances. By your grace and for your glory, turn our eyes on Christ. Because he has promised us peace. He has declared that our faith will save us. And he is good. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together today.